Good morning. We'd like to take a few minutes this morning to review in greater detail the verses just read from 1 Samuel. Through these verses we discover what is described as the Song of Hannah or the Songful Prayer of Hannah. We find in this brief account references to the following. The Messiah, Judgment, Resurrection, Divine Justice and Wisdom, Equitable or Unbiased Rulership, and a closing verse whose contents define the very consumption of the divine plan for all the ages. One of the most repeated types in the Old Testament is illustrated in the case of Hannah. The untimely birth of a son to a prayerful but barren woman. What other examples in Scripture can we think of that are similar to that of Hannah? One example provided to us is of an elderly woman who laughed when hearing that she would give birth. Let's read of that account by turning our Bibles to Genesis 18. I'll read verses 11 through 14. That's Genesis 18, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the same manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. The account continues with Sarah giving birth to Isaac. Another example within the Old Testament is that of a mother whose prenatal conditions are nearly identical with those of Hannah. Turn your Bibles to the book of Judges. Judges 13, I'll read verses 2 through 5. Judges 13, verses 2 through 5. And there was a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive, and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine or strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive, and bear a son, and a razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazareth unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. This example is, of course, speaking of the mother of Samson. This particular song is also comparable to that of the mother of Jesus, when she learned of the nature and destiny of the child she bore within her. Let us read of that account in Luke 1. Luke chapter 1 will read verses 26 through 31. 
verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. The account continues by telling us that he will sit on the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now indeed, the birth of Samuel was but a foreshadowing of this miracle that occurred some 1,200 years later. Let us now turn our Bibles back to 1 Samuel and see what lessons we can glean from Hannah and her songful prayer. Now, in order for us to gather a more complete understanding of Hannah's prayer, we need to begin with a brief overview of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, we read in this first chapter of a Levite named Elkanah, who lived in the town of Ramah. We are told he had two wives, Penina and Hannah. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. This caused Hannah great stress. Moreover, Penina added to her sorrow by mocking her. She probably did this out of jealousy of Hannah, who was greatly loved by her husband. Hannah was a woman of faith and made her problem a matter of fervent prayer. She asked Yahweh to bless her with a son. She stood at the door of the tabernacle where Eli, the high priest, sat and stayed upon a throne. And there she poured out her heart unto God. She vowed that if Yahweh would grant her request, she would give her son unto him all the days of his life. God answered the prayer. And in due time a son was born to Hannah, whom she named Samuel, which means name of God. We now pick up our accounts in 1 Samuel chapter 2, just after Hannah formally handed over her son to the care of Eli. It is here that Hannah's heart was filled with gratitude and love towards the Almighty God, and she expressed her joy in a glorious, prophetic hymn of praise. Over the next few minutes, we're going to be looking up a a few various scriptures, uh, but you might keep your finger in 1 Samuel chapter 2, as that will be our focal point. So we begin with verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. This initial verse is in the first person, yet seems to identify itself with Christ. Perhaps in this occurrence, Hannah deliberately identifies herself with the Savior to permit the song to accomplish its intended sublimity. Notice that the name Hannah means grace. It has been said that the word grace, as scripturally used, can apply only to Christ, since the Messiah is the true and full manifestation of the grace of God towards 
mankind. He is grace in the truest sense of the word. Turn your Bibles over to John, John chapter 1. We'll read John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. On this premise, then, we shall consider that the voice here is representative of the Lord Jesus, although primarily that of the literal woman, thus explaining the great rejoicing expressed at the beginning of the psalm. Continuing with verse 1, the reference to the exaltation of the horn is one that can be supported by similar references throughout Scripture to the power and might of the glorified Jesus. Let's go ahead and look up a few of these supporting verses as well. Psalms 132.17 Psalms 132.17 Verse 17, There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. Let's turn over to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 69. Remember, we're referencing the horn. Luke 1, 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The next statement in verse 1, concerning the enlargement of my mouth over the enemies, can be somewhat perplexing, but a simple description can infer that all rebellion will be subdued by the King of Kings when he rules with the rod of iron over the empires of the earth. Moving on to verse 2. Verse 2 reads, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. The supreme holiness of the deity is affirmed in verse 2, as is his complete unity. Let's reference a few notable passages to help support Verse 2. Psalms 97, 12. Psalms chapter 97, verse 12. 
Verse 12 reads, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. Let's turn over to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verse 11. Exodus 15.11, where the question is asked, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Let's turn over to Deuteronomy 32.4. Deuteronomy 32.4. Deuteronomy 32.4, where the statement is made, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. The reiteration of these essential truths was necessary to the Jewish race under Mosaic law, just as it is in the present dispensation. Now back over to First Samuel reading verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Talk no more so exceeding proudly, Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. In the third verse, we now fall to the level of human nature, with a condemnation of pride and arrogancy, characteristics that are abominable in God's sight. It is the exact opposite, meekness and lowliness of heart and spirit, that the Father requires of those who aspire to be true sons. Come with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs eight thirteen. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way in the forward mouth do I hate. Now we're to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, verse 11. Now I'll punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The omniscience and pure justice of the deity are displayed here as attributes of his flawless personality in contrast to the self-serving traits of mere man. These actions result in the defeat of the arm of flesh and a confiscation of all weapons of war, here simply represented by bows in verse 4. This is a condensed version of the later prophecies provided by Isaiah, Joel, and Micah concerning the transformation of warring weapons into farming tools. It is a prophetic affirmation that after 6,000 years of bloodshed and strife, the earth will enjoy a true Sabbath, a thousand tranquil years in which the ambitions of men will be transferred to the cultivation and beautification of their land instead of the pursuit of war. 
Moving on to verse 5. Verse 5 reads, They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The fifth verse of Hannah's song is somewhat mysterious at first glance, yet bears a great message. A clue to the meaning of the message is found in Luke 1.53. Let's turn to Luke Luke 1.53 He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. It was to the poor of the flock that Christ was sent and this theme of aid and support of the needy is in essence the hallmark of God's entire dealing with mankind. Arrogant self-sufficiency displays a complete lack of dependence upon God and His Son. And since all mankind is absolutely indebted to the deity for the very breath of life itself, it is foolishness for one to assume any air of independence or self-righteousness. To teach us the utter uselessness of natural inheritance, wealth, fleshly might, and all things that are exclusively human in origin, God has always worked out His purpose through the disinherited, the barren, the poor and the weak, the small in number, and the broken in spirit. All these are diametrically opposed to what constitutes prestige and worldly philosophy. But except for a few, the lesson has yet to be learned by the world. Continuing with verse 5. Barren hath born seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. A correlation obviously exists between this statement and that made in Isaiah 54.1. Please turn there. Isaiah 54.1. Sing. O barren, thou that is not bare, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that is not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. This prophecy of Isaiah speaks of the coming proliferation of the New Jerusalem. The future revelation of the New Jerusalem will see the complete fulfillment of the prophecy and allegory and the manifestation of countless glorified children after many centuries of desolation during Gentile times. The seven, referred to apparently signifies the perfection and completion of the divinely sanctioned birth, representing the unity and glory of the one body. In contrast to this marvelous productivity of that which is seemingly barren, And evidently as a consequent event, she that is blessed with many children is suddenly bereaved of her vitality. This means 
But when the saintly deliverance becomes a reality, an opposing and superficially similar organization will be destroyed. Where exists such a counterfeit mother and such a family of children during the Gentile time? Aaron alluded to this earlier. The 17th chapter of Revelation reveals the answer. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation and read chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. Revelation 17, verses 3 through 5. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The mother church, with all her immoral daughters and relatives, will surely wax feeble in the day of the Lord's wrath. Is in our next verse, verse 6. And we begin to see somewhat of a transition in Hannah's prayer. Verse 6 reveals Hannah's knowledge of the miracle of resurrection. In very elementary language, we are assured that death is not necessarily the termination of existence. Verse 6 reads, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Besides applying this to individuals, a further application was possibly intended to be conveyed in this case. Still bearing in mind the prophetic nature and understanding their basis in Jewish history, we may compare therewith Hosea chapter 6 and reason that the regeneration of Israel is hinted at in this instance. Let's turn to Hosea chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Hosea 6. Verses 1 and 2. Hosea 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for He hath torn and He will heal us. He hath smitten and and He will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. The Jewish race has been buried among the nations of the world by the decree of the Lord. It will rise to the top as did the axe head at the advent of the Messiah. And back to 1 Samuel, reading from verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He hath set the world upon them. 
For seven exhibits the judiciary rights of the Lord, declaring that as He has purposefully degraded His people for a time, so shall He also exalt them to a degree never before realized. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 8. We're going to read Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. Verse 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass, that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you. We have heard that God is with you. Among those who are raised from the dust of corruption will be some who sit among princes and inherit the throne of glory. This would appear to signify those who comprise the Israel of God, spiritual Israel, whose residents shall be princes of the kingdom as the royal companions of the Prince of Peace. The throne of glory is that revealed in shining symbolism in the opening chapters of Revelation. <clears throat> Surrounded by the worshiping host of saints. Is the throne of David at the zenith of its existence, occupied by its promised king and fulfilling its grand function. The earth is to be the kingdom ruled over and justifiably so, since the pillars of the earth are the Lord's as stated in verse 8. He created it and is concerned with its government and will send His Son to disentangle the chaotic mesh of oppression and and ignorance that 6,000 years of human rule have cast over its peoples. Pillars represent the saints, the saints themselves. We are told that the house of God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write upon him my new name. Revelation 3.12 informs us that everyone who overcomes will become a pillar in, in this house, which in itself typifies the saintly body. The world has been set upon these pillars, since they shall uphold the future world in their capacity as kings and priests, and eventually inherit it as the exclusive possession of an immortalized family. Now to 1 Samuel 2, verse 9. 2, verse 9 sustains the continuity of the saintly prophecy by encouraging us with the promise that the Father is ever watchful of those who are His. Verse 9 reads, He will keep the feet of His saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. 
The rebellious and perverse are to be condemned to the darkness and obscurity of the grave. Since Cain, physical violence or cruelty has been the ultimate means of attaining that which is desired, whether it requires the elimination of one or a million. As long as this is permitted, it is impossible that people or nations could live side. It is not possible that, as long as this is permitted, it is impossible that people or nations could live side by side in unity or peace. The effect of human force will be made apparent when the sands of Gentile times have dwindled away, and the judgments of God are in the earth. All who rebel will be ruthlessly and righteously destroyed. Perhaps natural disasters will be compounded with the smashing blows of the saintly army in the work of reducing the Gentile forces. Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel chapter 38, and we'll read verses 22 through 23. Ezekiel 38, verses 22 and 23. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands, and upon the many people that are with him, an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And beyond doubt, a time of trouble is coming upon the earth of necessity. Out of the blackness of this stormy period of divine retribution will arise a cleansed, watered, and purified world. It is here that we will see the King personified of the Deity Himself, deriving strength and glory from Him who is the source of all things. And finally, the closing words of Hannah's exalted song are practically identical with those with which it began. A spring to full circle this heartfelt expression of her joy and love for the living God in giving her a son. And through him, looking far into the future and realizing the wonder and manifold wisdom of God's glorious plan, has come this emotional tribute in which we all may share. Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. As we conclude our remarks this morning, reflecting upon the words of Hannah expressed in the first ten verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we spoke of the Messiah, judgment, resurrection, divine justice and wisdom, unbiased rulership, and a future kingdom upon this earth. It is important that we remain thankful that we have been called out of the darkness of this world and that our eyes have been made to see the great beauties of the truth and that we have been inclined to accept them. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought but that we receive a full reward. And may we, with Hannah, be among that splendid choir which shall sing the new song.